as you're turning there, let me just say that the, the next few weeks or few months, we are going to be looking at the superiority of Jesus Christ. Now, we all know that Christ is superior, but at the same time, the, the author of Hebrews focuses in very appropriately and rightly into this theme of the uh, superiority of Jesus Christ in a variety of different perspectives. So we're going to walk through all of his perspectives over the next weeks or so, seeing the superiority in all these different settings or in comparison contrast to all these other uh, people, as it were, or persons is probably a better term. Uh, just to give you an example, today we're going to be looking at the prophets, the superiority of Jesus Christ over the prophets. Next week we'll be looking at, and probably for the next couple of weeks, the superiority of Jesus Christ over the angels. Now, let me just say from the get-go that our perspective is that, of course, Jesus is superior to the prophets. And the reason why is because we're not Jewish. The Jews in, in Jesus' day, certainly, and in, in the New Testament era, would have, the Christian Jews, as would have struggled with that. They were steeped in the prophets. So it's important, I say that to say, that as we go through the study of the superiority of Jesus over the prophets, or the superiority of Jesus over the angels, or the superiority of Jesus over Moses, for example, it's important that we understand that he's choosing, the author of Hebrews is choosing to focus on the superiority of Jesus over certain specific persons. And the reason why is because of their struggles. Ours may very well be different from that. That we need to wrestle with the superiority of Jesus over something or someone else. These are kind of, if I may describe it this way, they're primers, as it were, to cause the reader of Hebrews to stop and say, in reality, Jesus Christ is superior over all things and all persons. And so, as I think about myself, what do I struggle with with regard to the superiority of Jesus over blank? Does that make sense? When we get into chapter 2, when he starts to say we need to guard ourselves, that we don't get a cold heart, it's because of the whole superiority issue. Now, we're not going to talk about that today. But I just wanted to give you the primer looking forward. Does that make sense? And we'll get that more when we get there. But let's start out, perhaps the best way to introduce Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 or 4, is to read through the transfiguration of Matthew chapter 17. So follow along as I read, if you would, please. After six days, starting in verse 1, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he, that is Jesus, was transfigured before them. That is, he was changed. And the picture is that he's being changed into his full glory that he'd have in heaven. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here, if you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now I want to stop on that for a second. You've heard me speak on this text before. And, and before when we looked at this text, I had mentioned, and rightly so, that Peter is, is making the point of, I don't want to leave. Let's stay here and all hang out. Why should we go back down to where all that sin and mess is? Let's just stay here where you are so amazing and 
these other two, Moses and Elijah, are here as well. Let's just stay here for a while, shall we? Let's delay the inevitable of going back down. And although that's true, I think something else is also happening here that is equally important and probably even more important. The scriptures go on and say this. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. That's a dramatic statement. You've heard me say this before. God the Father is confronting Peter personally. What a horrifying thing that would be. It goes on. And Matthew records this. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, rising, or saying, rise and have no fear. Verse 8, and when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus alone. This is a dramatic event in Peter's life and in the other two disciples' lives as well. And it ought to be a dramatic teaching event for everyone who reads the text. Jesus is transfigured. And appearing with Jesus is Elijah and Moses. Peter is enthralled. He doesn't want to leave. But God the Father speaks. In effect saying, Peter, you've missed the whole point. But it is interesting what God the Father says to Peter. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. What is God the Father saying to Peter? It's not about Moses and Elijah. Remember what, what did Peter say? Let's build what? Three houses for the three of you. What Peter just effectively did is made all three of them what? Equal. And, G, and God the Father speaks strongly rebuking Peter and says what? This, uniquely, this person is my beloved son. Listen to him. Not Moses. Not Elijah. Him. And then when they open their eyes, verse 8, what do they see? What do they see? Just, just Jesus. No Moses. No Elijah. Because it's all about Jesus. Now that should reflect back to Jesus' teaching, right? Well, the Old Testament prophets were doing what? They were just talking about him, right? So the theme of the, of the transfiguration, Peter misses it completely. The theme of the transfiguration is it's about Jesus. Listen to him. Or if I may put it this way, in light of Hebrews chapter 1, as we'll see in a second, the, the God the Father is saying, in effect, Peter, what you need to learn more than anything else is the support superiority of Jesus over Elijah and Moses. The superiority of Jesus. And the theme of early part of Hebrews is, and as a matter of fact, the whole of Hebrews is the superiority of Jesus over everything and everyone. So take your scriptures, if you would, please. There's much more we could say about, about Matthew 17 and the transfiguration, but we want to get into Hebrews this morning. So Hebrews chapter 1. 
Again, we're going to look at just the first three uh, verses of Hebrews chapter 1. And uh, give me one second here. Hebrews chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews records, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the power, uh, by, by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now I read through verse 4, but we're only going to go through verse 3. You'll notice that verse 3 is ending in a in a comma, not a period. So the, the phrase flows, or the sentence flows all the way through verse 4. We're going to end at verse 3 this morning. Again, we're looking at the supremacy of Christ in comparison to the prophets. And right away in chapter 1, verse 1 of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews establishes that long ago, and many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. I want you to notice in verse 1, God is talking about the past days. And in the past days, it's described that God spoke to people. Very important we get that. God spoke to people. God did not exist without communicating. He spoke to people. But how did he speak to people? Through the prophets. He spoke to their fathers through the prophets. So they were one removed, as it were, their ancestors, in other words, were once removed from the actual communication of God. But what the writer of Hebrews says in the ne- first word of the next verse, but establishes the contrast between verse 1 and what's going to come afterwards. Something has dramatically changed. Elsewhere in the scriptures, it's recorded that Jesus Christ came at the fullness of time. Something dramatically changed at that point in time when Christ came to this planet. There, a matter of fact, we can change that to some things dramatically changed. As a matter of fact, we can change that again, that everything changed when Christ came. Everything changed. The thing that he's focused to here, however, is this one thing that has changed, and that is in verse 2, but in these last days, he, the Father, has spoken to us by his Son. In the previous days, it was through the prophets. But in the fullness of time, everything changed. Christ came, the Father's Son came, and he spoke to us, the writer of Hebrews says. That is, the Father spoke by His Son. Now, that's significant. But at this point in time, if we just stop there, what do we have? We have that same thing that Peter missed in the transfiguration. In the old days, he spoke through the prophets, but in the last days, he spoke through the Son. Okay, that sounds kind of like an equality thing, right? 
there's a shift, but it's an equality thing. It's just more of the same, just this is latest in, uh, his latest tool, as it were, to communicate. Oh, but it's not. You know, up to this point in time, we have repeatedly asked the two questions, who is this Christ, and why is he so worthy of, of, our, of our worship, right? Well, here in this text this morning, we're going to learn seven things about Jesus that make him superior to the prophets. Now, again, you may find the discussion, seven things that makes Jesus, that shows that Jesus is more superior to the prophets, is kind of a, a bland study. And I can appreciate that, again, as we started out the study, because we don't really cling to the prophets like the Jews did. Does that make sense? So when we hear this discussion about seven ways in which Jesus is superior to the prophets, we need to take it in its historical context and realize the actual literal statement that he's superior, superior in these seven ways to the prophets as being superior to the prophets. But we also need to realize that, again, it's a launching pad to, for us to ask ourselves, what are the struggles that you and I have with regard to superiority of Jesus? Because the superiority issue is still a very important and open question for all of us to wrestle with. And as we hear the author talk about Jesus, it's expected that we, the reader, begin to wrestle with the things that I hold as superior are they superior to Jesus, or is Jesus superior to them? Does that make sense? Are the things that I cling to, are they superior to Jesus, or is Jesus superior to them? In other words, what the author of Hebrews is saying is look at the evidence. Look at the truth of what we cling to, and look at the truth of Jesus. Because, see, as Peter was stuck on the prophets and Jews were stuck on the prophets, we get stuck on things, right? And we cling to them for purpose, for meaning, for hope, for happiness, for satisfaction. And it's appropriate for us to compare and contrast the things we cling to to Jesus. See, if we don't, we can fall into all sorts of traps. If we don't spend our time comparing and contrasting, because then things begin to live on their own. Does that make sense? Things start taking on a life of their own. And they exist on their own. And they become, they, their value becomes not something that's from him, through him, to him, but it begins to exist on its own as its own entity. And in fact, will inevitably begin to become in our minds, in our hearts, superior in our lives, superior to Christ. So what the author of Hebrews does here in this text is after introducing this reality, this amazing shift from the prophets to Christ, this dramatic shift, he begins to point out seven ways in which Christ is superior. So let's look at them. We'll, for sake of necessity, be brief on every one of them. Starting in verse 1 again, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God has spoken, has spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And now we get into the seven um, arguments that he gives of his superiority. Whom he has appointed 
the heir of all things. Now, again, it's important that we understand what the writer of Hebrews wants the reader to do is ask themselves a really important question. Were the prophets appointed as heirs of all things? The answer is no, and then secondarily yes, and we're going to see it in a second. But primarily no. But what Jesus, he says, Jesus is this person who is speaking to, to us in the last days. Who is this Christ? Who is this Jesus? There's the question, right? He is someone who has been appointed the heir of all things. What does that mean? In other words, he is the only and sole right heir or inheritor, right? He's the only sole right or inheritor of all things, which means what? He owns all things. He's the sole owner of all things. What the writer of Hebrews is saying to you simply summed up is this. He is superior to the prophets because he is sole owner. He is the sole inheritor of all things. Now, you'll notice that excludes the prophets. Nowhere in the Old Testament are the prophets described as the heir of all things. Nowhere in the Old Testament is that, is that stated. But Jesus has been declared by the Father the heir of all things. Now I said, I said that Jesus is superior to the prophets because uh, he's the heir of all things. And just a reminder, we need to ask ourselves, this thing or these things that I cling to, these things that I find valuable, are they the, an heir to anything? See, that's the whole point. The things that I hold really valuable, are they... Have they been appointed an heir to anything? He's the heir to all things. He's the sole inheritor. I said the prophets were not inheritors primarily, but they became inheritors just like you and I did. The scriptures tell us that, right? Ephesians tells us that, right? We have been given an inheritance, correct? It doesn't fade away. It's eternal. It's reserved in heaven for you. Elsewhere, the scriptures tell us something else that's really interesting. The idea of the inheritance we are given is that Jesus himself is sharing his soul inheritance with his children. That's striking, by the way. That shows his superiority, right? He's a soul inheritor. And because of his mercy and his grace to those who, he, who believe in him, he does what? He shares it. He shares it with you. That's why he's gone to prepare a place for you. He's gone to prepare a place for you where? In his inheritance. So that you can share in the inheritance. Do you deserve it? No. It's by grace we have been saved through faith, right? Not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest, anything, lest anyone should boast. But we're inheritors. And because we're inheritors also, if they were in faith, the prophets, and they were in faith, they also become inheritors, right? But the inheritance that you and I get, it's important we get this, the inheritance you and I get are, is a derivative inheritance. It's not a primary inheritance. It's derived from someone. 
You and I are inheritors. And that will blow our minds that we're inheritors. But we're inheritors because the inheritance we have is derived from Christ. And not only that, but it's also interesting to notice that we are what? We're also, according to the scriptures, adopted, aren't we? Not natural born. And so by nature, it has to be derived. It doesn't naturally flow. Oh, and also, by the way, the scriptures describe Jesus as firstborn. And the scriptures in the Old Testament, who got the inheritance? Firstborn. If we're adopted, we can never be firstborn. So if we receive an inheritance, it's because what? Firstborn shares it with you. It rightfully belongs to him, and he shares it with you. Now, why does the author of Hebrews start there? Well, he starts there because he needs us to understand its very basics, its very core basics. Jesus has something that the prophets don't have. When it's fleshed out all the way through, not only does Jesus have something that the prophets don't have coming to them, and therefore he's superior, but Jesus offers something the prophets can't offer, which demonstrates, again, his superiority. So you know what we ought to do? For us, it's not the prophets again, right? We need to ask ourselves, very importantly, we need to ask ourselves, what do the things I cling to so dearly? What do they offer me? Do they offer me an inheritance? They, do they offer me the privilege of being heir? Sole heir? No. Do they offer me the privilege of, are they sole heir? No. Do they offer me a derivative inheritance? No. Is Jesus superior to them? Yes, and in every way, amen. He goes on. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Again, he's trying to establish the superiority of Christ over the prophets, and he points out that Christ was the creator of the world. Jesus was the creator of the world. Is that true? Yes. That's what the scriptures tell us. The whole Trinity, the whole Godhead was involved in the creation of, of of the all the created order, all the created world, everything that was created. Christ was a primary mover and shaker for the creation of everything that was created. So what the author of Hebrews wants the reader of Hebrews to ask themselves is this. Were the prophets involved in the creation? No, of course not. The prophets were not involved in the creation. They are part of the creation. They are part of the created order. They are not the creator. The superiority of Jesus over the created world and the idea in the text when it says through whom he also created the world, it means not just the globe. It means all the created things that have ever been created. He's the creator of. He was involved in that. They were not. Superiority belongs to Jesus. So 
Peter was in error. In other words, at the Mount of Transfiguration, when he saw them, the three of them is equal. This is my beloved son. And the key phrase in that whole transfiguration is what? Listen to him. That's the point of Hebrews. Were the prophets involved in creation? No. Jesus was. Listen to him. What you hold dear, what I hold dear, what we look to as supreme and superior for satisfaction, for fulfillment, for whatever, we need to ask ourselves, comparison, contrast. We need to ask ourselves a very important question. Is that thing or those things, are those, were those involved in the creation of all the, all the world? The answer is, obviously not. I know these are simple questions, right? They're obvious questions. They're like, well, duh, Steve. But they're really poignant and important questions. Because if they weren't part of the creation of the world, but instead they're a created thing, that means they're obviously what? Superior to Jesus or subservient to Jesus? Subservient clearly and appropriately so. They're created. He's creator. Their creation, he's creator. Therefore, they come under Jesus in every way. As a matter of fact, it's, it's not even in any comparison at all. It's just in a complete contrast. And what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get across to you and I is exactly what we've been talking about. All things are from him, through him, to him. To him be glory forever. We get caught up just like they did then. They get caught up with the prophets. We don't necessarily get caught up in the prophets, but we get caught up in all sorts of other things. And we need to ask, and one of the reasons why we do is because we don't ever compare and contrast. And what the author of Hebrews is trying to do is, is do these really simple comparison contrasts. Are they or aren't they? Is he or isn't he? And in the comparison contrast, we can see how easily we give our hearts away. And we can see how beautifully and how importantly he is superior to these things. If I may just pause for a second and state the obvious question at this point, just by going through the first two points, is this. If it's obvious, superiority and inferiority, if it's obvious, why would we ever go after the inferiority? Right? Why would we ever get consumed with the inferiority? If one is superior and everything else is inferior, why in the world would we go after the inferior? Or to use the second illustration here, the second argument, he is superior as demonstrated that in the fact that he is, he is the creator and everything else is the creation, specifically the prophets. Why would we consume ourselves with the product when we have the privilege of being consumed with the creator of the product. Jesus. He goes on. Verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He exudes the radiance of the glory of God. You look on Jesus especially at the Mount of Transfiguration, right? And he exuded the glory of God. 
But not only that, he exuded it all the time, didn't he? Now, we want to try to separate the next statement from this statement, but he is the radiance of the glory of God. In every aspect of his being, he radiated the glory of God. He, he lived for the glory of the Father, didn't he? He spoke to the glory of the Father continually, did he not? It was continuous. Now, so did the prophets, didn't they? Yeah, when they were doing their prophet thing, right? There's a big difference. When they were doing their prophet thing, they did. Just like when Paul did his apostolic writing, he was accurately reflecting what God wanted him to communicate, right? Does that make sense? But that doesn't mean that they continually and forever did that, right? I mean, Romans chapter 7. This isn't prophet, but just as illustration. Romans chapter 7, the great, pro, the great apostle Paul, he would never call himself a great apostle, but you get the point. The apostle Paul describes himself as what? A wretched man. And he further describes himself as being someone who finds himself all the time knowing what's right to do and doing what? Well, everything else. Knowing what's wrong to do and just throwing himself into it. And he recognizes that very clearly. If you talk to the Old Testament prophets, you'd have found the exact same thing. When they're, just because they were doing the, the God-ordained things didn't mean they were perfect. Didn't mean they continuously radiated the glory of God. Not like Jesus did. Again, we have the superiority of Jesus. He never sinned. In any way, form, or fashion, he is the radiance of the glory of God, superiority. Once again, we come back to the same question. Why? The author of Hebrews is saying, why would you pursue, crave, desire, chase after the inferior thing when you have the superior Jesus that the Old Testament prophets even pointed towards? And by the way, lest we miss the point, you know, we talked about the Old Testament prophets they were pointing towards Jesus. If all things are from him, through him, to him, so do the things we pursue. You do realize that, right? Just as the Old Testament prophets pointed toward Jesus, our recreation points toward Jesus. Our jobs point toward Jesus. Our jobs exist toward Jesus. Our families point to Jesus. Our belongings point to Jesus. Well, all things are from him, through him, to him. They are all things from him, through him, to him whether we choose to acknowledge that or not. There's still all things from him, through, from him, through him, to him. Does that make sense? And so why the point of, of here, once again here is, why pursue the, the imperfect or the inferior that sometimes radiated the glory of God and secondarily radiated the glory of God for the superior that continually radiated the glory of God? He goes on, he says, and the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint of his nature. In other words, and Jesus said that, if you know me, you know what? The Father. There it is. If you know me, you know the Father. I, what he's saying is, I am the exact imprint of the Father. 
In every way, you look at me, you see the Father. You, you hear me, you're hearing the Father. You see me, you see the Father. I'm the exact imprint. It's interesting, when you go into the Old Testament, into the law, there's a, a very strong prohibition in the law that says you are not to make any graven images. And the idea is to make any image that would represent God. Previous to that, it said don't have any other gods. So the graven images can't be referencing that. It's making images to represent God. There's two reasons why that is. Number one, the created thing can never capture the idea of the uncreated thing, the, crea the, the, creation, the creator. Can't do it. So don't do it. Because in doing it, you will shrink down in your mind the idea of the creator God to something finite, and he's not finite, he's infinite, number one. Number two, you will eventually find yourself doing what? Worshiping the image. You will eventually find yourself worshiping the image rather than the one who you originally said it was merely representing. You'll eventually worship the image itself instead. But secondly, and lastly, why should you not make an image to worship? The reason why is because what the Father's plan was from the get-go was at the fullness of time to send you a perfect image of Him. In the Son. That's why He was sent. Yes, He was sent to die, to pay the penalty for your sin and my sin, and to rise again and to set us free and to conquer sin, Satan and death. Absolutely and amen. But He was also sent as, a, as the perfect image of God to walk among men. Which again begs the question. Several questions. Were the prophets the perfect image of God? I know the image of God and man was there, right? The image of God and man was in the prophets, wasn't it? Yes. But at the fall, what happened to that image? It was a ruins, wasn't it? It was a pile of rubble. It took the perfect image to begin the process of rebuilding that image in man of God. See, the prophets at best were a rubble, a pile of rubble when it comes to the image of God. Therefore, they, by very nature, are inferior to the superiority of Jesus Christ, who is the absolute perfect representation or imprint of his nature. So that begs the next question. Why pursue? Why get enthralled with? Why get consumed by the inferior? Now, if I may just pause this for a second, just by point of clarification, the reason why the Jews so often were enthralled with and consumed by the prophets was because they missed the whole point of what they were doing. They were pointing to Jesus, right? They missed that whole point, as demonstrated by Jesus' conversations with the Pharisees. They missed the whole point of that connection. So as a result, they got consumed with the prophets and the patriarchs. They got consumed with them 
because they missed the point that they were pointing to Jesus. And that's the point. They got caught up in the inferior and not the purpose for the inferior. The purpose was for the inferior was point to point to the superior. And when they lost track of that, they got caught up in it. It's inevitable. So it begs the question, wh again, what are we caught up with? Are we caught up with the, with the superior or the inferior? So I need to ask this question. With regard to what you and I get caught up with, which we do, don't we? I mean, let's acknowledge it. Let's be honest with ourselves. We do get caught up with it. We need to ask ourselves the question. The thing we caught, get caught up with, is it a perfect imprint of the Father? Is it? And if it's not, if it's inferior, it obviously isn't, then its purpose is to do what? Point us to the source. Point us to the superior. Point us to the perfect imprint. That's its purpose. That's why it's so insidious that when we get caught up in the inferior, that's why it's so insidious when we get so caught up in our job, it's, ends, it, it's an end in itself. We get so caught up in our finances that we don't see Jesus in it. We get so caught up in our toys that we don't see Jesus in it. We get so caught up in our recreation that we don't see Jesus in it. We get so caught up in our families, in our relationships, that we don't see Jesus in it. And we, and we get so caught up in our health that we don't see Jesus in it. And on and on and on. We don't see its purposes from him, through him, to him. And so as a result, we get caught up in the inferior. Right? Uh, if I may just use this as an illustration, just to clarify it, too often I find Christians especially, I know the world does too, but I expect the world to get it, but Christians get so caught up in a pursuit of keeping themselves healthy. Is it okay to keep healthy? Well, certainly it is. Right? We don't drive down the left side of the road unless we're in England. And why don't we drive down the rest, left side of the road? Well, it's, it's obvious, Right? It's unhealthy to drive down the left side of the road in America. It's absolutely unhealthy. You, you're on the clock, and eventually you are going to be unhealthy. You drive down the left side of the road. And so there's nothing wrong with that. But I find so often people get so consumed, especially believers. I'm just using this as an example. We get so consumed with being healthy, 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 and it has nothing to do with Jesus. Right? It has nothing to do with his glory. It has to do with my ease and my comfort. But it has nothing to do with Jesus. It has nothing to do with his glory. We see it disconnected, and we miss the point. And again, I'm just using it as an illustration. We miss the point that we're all caught up with the inferior. And if we just think through it for a second, it, we realize it, right? I mean, think about it. No matter how healthy you try to be, what's going to happen? You're going to get unhealthy. It's do you're doomed. Right? You're doomed. You're going to be unhealthy. I don't care how well you take care of yourself. I don't care what pills you take. I don't care how many times you go to the doctor. And nothing wrong going go to the doctor. Nothing wrong taking pills. I'm not saying that, please. I'm not advocating something weird. But we need to understand, no matter how much I pursue this, it's a point on a man wants to die. And then there's the, which means we're going to face the superior one, aren't we? Right? We're going to face the superior one. 
So if you want to take vitamins, take vitamins. If you want to go to the doctor, go to the doctor. If you're not feeling well, you should go to the doctor. Right? There's no question about that. But at the same time, I find Paul in, in, in Philippians chapter 4 saying what? I've learned the secret of contentment in all things. Whether I have a lot or nothing, whether I'm free or in prison, may I throw it out there? Whether I am sick or healthy, I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Where's Paul fo Paul's focus? On the inferior or superior? On superior. And he's recognizing that the inferior exists for the glory of the superior. And too often, again, just by illustration, we are just consumed with making sure that we're healthy and, 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 and feeling good, but it has nothing to do with Jesus. I'm not preaching about health here. I'm just using it as an illustration. If, th if that's not you, apply it to the direction you want to apply it to, or which is appropriate to apply it to. The point is, no matter how healthy I am, I will never be an exact representation or imprint of the Father, will I? Not even close. Or whatever it is that you look to for your satisfaction, safety, security, whatever it may be, the author of Hebrews and ultimately God wants us to ask this really important question, is that thing, that person, an exact representation. If not, why would we be lost in pursuing something so inferior? It even applies to marriage, even at the covenant. Because you do realize that eventually all our marriages will end. Right? And they will. Hopefully they'll make it to death. But unless you have a car accident and both of you die instantly, one of you are going to die before the other one. And your marriage will end. And by the way, Ephesians 5 tells us that the whole point of marriage is what? To show forth the superiority of Christ. That's the whole point of it. To show the superiority of Christ. He alone is the exact imprint. We again have a derivative image of God that's been given to us. That by grace and mercy, is being rebuilt by God. He goes on. And he upholds the universe by the power, or by the word of his power. He's not just the creator, but he's also the upholder. Talking about the superiority of Jesus. He's the upholder. This is an interesting one. He's the upholder by his word, by the power of his word. He upholds the universe. Now, please understand that it means what you think it means, but it means a whole lot more than what you think it means. When he says he upholds by his word the universe, by the power of his word, the universe, he's saying he holds everything together. Now, we get that. The scriptures say that, doesn't it? Atoms stay together because of the power of his word. The universe doesn't come apart because of the power of his word. The created order remains the created order by the power of his word. He is active. 
He wasn't just active the day, the seven days of creation. He remains active, holding it all together. Everything physical. Everything. He holds it all together. Whatever it may be, including you and your body and me. Everything he holds together. But it's bigger than that. When he says he holds the universe together by the word of his power, it's talking also about the events that take place in this created world. It's even talking about the events. If I'm going to use the illustration because it just recently happened, the, even what happened in Barcelona recently, even what happened in Charlottesville recently. Do you realize those things, even those horrific events, are supposed to be for his glory? They're designed to bring glory to God. And he holds even those things together. They're not happening outside of him. You've heard me say it before. God doesn't call a, a triune council together to figure out how to deal with this or that that happens. They're all part of his plan. He holds it all together. The horrific events that happen and the good things. You've heard me talk about it before from the scripture that says not just the good times, but the calamities, the scriptures tell us, are all from him and for his glory. He uniquely holds these things together. So the writer of Hebrews wants you to ask the question, and any reader to ask the question, do the prophets hold these things together? By the power of their word? Did they ever hold anything together by the power of their word? The answer is no, not ever. Not ever. Changing it from the prophets, Ken builds things out of wood. And Ken, when you, when you join two pieces of the wood together, you use what to join it together? joinery or glue. You bring it together, you cut the grooves and you, or the, the gaps and you stick it together, you put the glue in there and you clamp it, right? You wait for it to dry and if you did it right, it stays together. Do you really think that glue inherently does that? It does that because what? Because Christ holds all things together. He holds the universe together by the power of his word. It's not glue, it's the power of God's word that makes the glue do what it's supposed to do. Because he's the creator of all things and he holds it all together. Does that make sense? Totally changed your view on glue now, doesn't it? Just a little bit? Pretty wild, huh? Or if I may say it's Matt. You think if you have if you have correct data input, you're gonna get correct data output, right? And if the program's written right, then it's gonna work right, right? You really think it's the program that does that? Do you really think ultimately it's the computer that does that? The answer is no, right? Because the computer doesn't hold anything together, does it? The only thing that holds it together is Christ. Good job. Christ, that's it. So it, what the author of Hebrews again is saying is why would you cling to the inferior? Not the prophets. They point to the superior. They, they don't hold anything together. 
then to bring it into our time frame, again, what do we cling to? Does it hold anything together? Does it? No. I remember one of my kayaking buddies saying to me, the family that kayaks together stays together. Really? Kayaking is the glue that'll stitch them together? Don't think so. Don't think so at all. It's God who holds it together, right? Christ, by the power of his word, holds things together. And if Christ says something is not going to be together, if, if I use a silly illustration, but if Christ says, Ken, those two pieces of wood are not going to stay together, what do you think? <laughs> it's not going to stay together, is it? I don't care. You can go buy a whole, whole stockyard full of, of glues, of different type of glues. Is it going to stay together? It's not going to stay together. No hope. It's not going to stay together. Why? Because the inferior always submits to the superior. And there's only one superior, and it's Christ. He goes on. Verse 3, after making purifications for sin, stop. So there's two here. After making purification for sin, <laughs> which automatically, we understand the purification for sin, right? He died on the cross, paid the penalty for sin. He took on God's wrath, right? And he took care of the purification, right? Or as it says here, after making purification for sin, in his blood is the implication. He went to the cross and died wearing your sin in mind and absorbing the wrath Making purification for sin is the perfect sacrifice. The author of Hebrews wants, and that's simple enough to get. If you need to wrestle with that a little more, we can talk about that so you can understand that a little bit more. We've talked about that for years. The author of Hebrews, more importantly, wants the reader to recognize that he alone made purification for sin. And ask the question, did the prophets ever make purification for sin? The answer is, no. What did they do? At best, they did what? They provided the animals and they slayed the animals, right? Perhaps, like Elijah did up on top of the mountain. They may have killed an animal or two or five or 20 or 100 or 200 or whatever because of sin, correct? But even the Old Testament tells us that those sacrifices did not make ultimate purification for sin. What did they do? They foreshadowed and in reality covered the sin. That's actually what the word means as it's described in the Old Testament. It was a covering. It was like sweeping it under the rug. If you could picture sweeping dust and dirt and sweeping it under the rug. That's the best the prophets could do. And it foreshadowed the sacrifices foreshadowed what was yet to come what was yet to come jesus christ the superior perfect lamb of god who is no longer going to to sweep it under the rug quite to the contrary what jesus was going to do is he's going to come along and get rid of the rug and he's going to take and gather up all the junk that's underneath the rug and he's in a clean house and it's going to be which prophet did that? None. The superiority of Christ over the prophets. Or, 
if it comes back to us, which one of the things we cling to, which one of the things we depend on, which one of the things we long for, ever made a purification for sin? Which one ever did? Inferiority versus superiority. Why would we go after the inferior when we can have the superior? He goes on. After making purification for sin, he did what? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And this is where we're going to end today. He sat down. Now, what does that mean to sit down at the right hand of the majesty on high? Well, it means several things. Immediately what it means, the scriptures tell us, he went back to be a what for us? A propitiation, an advocate for us. He went to be an advocate, to advocate for you and I. The Father. The perfect advocate. Now ultimately he's at the right hand of God, the Father also to be judge. So, begs the question. So he's active today in caring for us and watching over for us and advocating for us. It begs the question in the text, which one of the prophets were that? Ever. Which one of the prophets ever sat down at the right hand of the Father? The answer is obvious. None of them. Oh, by the way, that's why they had to keep sacrificing over and over and over and over again because they could because it never was atoned for. That is, sin was never perfectly atoned for. They could never sit down. As a matter of fact, there wasn't even any place for them to sit down in the temple. There wasn't even a place. But when Christ, the perfect lamb, was sacrificed, he said at the end what? It is finished. And as a result, now our perfect prophet, priest, and king sits on a throne because it's been accomplished. So which one of the prophets ever did that? None of them. Which one ever had a chance of doing that? For anyone. None of them. There's only two ways sin can be atoned for. And neither one of them involved the prophets. The one way is what Christ did on the cross, and the other way is eternity in hell. And never paid for. Always paying. Right? And nobody else goes to hell for you. For me. So the point of Hebrews at the end of verse 3 is which one is supreme, the prophets or the one who now is seated at the right hand of God, having accomplished everything he came to accomplish. And it was effective. And unlike any of the prophets, he sits down. It's incredible, isn't it? Or to bring it into our time frame, which of the things or people that you and I cling to so tightly sits at the right hand of the Father? Mission accomplished completely after having declared it is finished. And having making purification for your sin. Has any of the things or people you cling to other than Jesus done that? The answer is no. Why? 
why would we ever cling to inferior things? When by grace, through faith, he has given us the superior things. And that's the point of Hebrews 1 through, 1, 1 through 3. Christ is superior to the prophets. Or bring it into our modern day to whatever. And the statement that he upholds the entire creation, the entire universe by the power of his word, clearly makes it that thing. What is it we cling to? Who is Christ? And why is he so worthy of our worship? The answer is here. He alone is the, is the superior. He alone fulfills perfectly and matches perfectly all seven of these statements. All seven. And it's not even a contest. Nothing or no one else even comes close. As a matter of fact, there's no comparison. It's only a contrast. Because out of all the created world, nothing accomplishes even close to one of these things. I would present to you that at best they're shadows. But why cling to the shadows? Because when we cling to the shadows, the shadows take on a life of their own. And very quickly, they no longer point us to Jesus. We miss it. Jesus is superior. So the, the closing statement I would make to you is if Jesus is superior, as the writer of Hebrews says, I would encourage all of us to ask ourselves a really important question. What are the inferior things that we cling to? What are the inferior things that we look to? It may very well be for some of them that we need to say, I can't have those inferior things because they're that powerful in my life that I must have the superior. And the only way I can have the superior is by removing the inferior from me. So in some cases, that may be the case. In some cases, it would be wrong to do that. Like, you know, I've been clinging to my wife too much, and she's inferior in comparison to my wife. Don't ever tell your wife she's inferior, by the way. But she is. I'll say it for you. She is in light of Christ. No, even with my wife. I, I say it about my own wife. She is in light of Christ. I think she's okay with that. Because my wife's purpose is to what? Point me to Jesus. The superior. But I can't get rid of my wife. That would be wrong. Well, I want to I know Jesus better if I'm going to get rid of my wife. That, that doesn't work. Because that's a violation of scriptures. And we all know that. I'm just joking. But you get the point. In some cases, we just need to repent and and respond back to God and recognize Christ for who he is and realize those things in our lives are for the purpose of pointing us to Jesus because he holds the universe together by the power of his word. In some cases, maybe we need to get rid of some things and say, yeah, that's just, that's just an earth anchor. That is anchoring me to the inferior so that I can't see the superior. You know that old hymn, the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. If we give up things to know his glory and grace, we'll say, wow, that wasn't much. That wasn't much after all. When I had it, I thought it was, a, I thought it was, it was the cat's meow. But now, yeah, that's not much. Christ is so much better. Why? 
because he's superior as a prophet. Let's pray. Lord, help us. <clears throat> we are prone to wonder. We are prone to leave the God we love. We are prone to get caught up in the inferior and miss the superior. We are prone to see the inferior as standing alone, disconnected from Christ. And so, Lord, I ask you to help us. I pray that you help us to see Christ as superior and see all things as they connect with Jesus. What should that look like? I don't know. Depends on the thing. But Lord, I ask you that your spirit will work mightily in us so that we will be people who more and more see the superiority of Christ and love our Redeemer. In your name I pray. Amen.